I've probably said this before, but one of these days we're going to record the pre-show. We're going to record the pre-production <laughs> because that's the content. <laughs> Is that the Patreon content? It, it, it one, one day, one, one day we'll, we'll get there. Um, all right. A couple things before we get started this week. No, I did not get a chance to look at the Janet Jackson documentary, but we will get there, especially for Black History Month. Remember a few weeks ago over dinner, we were talking about what the kids just don't know. Mm -hmm. They didn't know that such and such happened, you know, in the 80s or even in the 90s. And I feel like Janet Jackson is is one of those figures. The kids don't know uh, poetic justice. Agreed. Much less the albums, you know, sure. they they were not there when uh, when she partnered with her brother, Michael, and came out with uh, the song Scream and the music video Scream. I think to this day, it's still the most expensive music video, period, like that, that, that was that was ever done. I mean, and we haven't even started talking about Escapade and uh, Rhythm Nation. I mean, all the way back to control, to control you know. Whew, anyway, shout out to Janet Jackson. She will have a spot on Triloquy for Black History Month, so don't worry. I just need to get a chance to uh, look at the uh, documentary. before. Also, before we get started, there's something I have to read today. You have uh, a read? We're, we're, getting, we're getting official. The views expressed in this episode, I need y'all to listen carefully. The views expressed in this episode are those of the speaker and do not reflect the views, opinions, or official policies of the United States Army, the Department of Defense, or the United States government. Today's third movement features Shayna Rush, who is a member of the Old Guard Drum and Fife Corps. She's going to talk about the black origins of it all, but because we have a, a real life government agent, you know. She asked that I, I read that official statement so that nobody so up there in, in, in the in the government is is trying to give it to her. So if y'all have some smoke for Shayna, you actually have some smoke for me. Come to my house and try to make me shave my head and go to boot camp. And I'm talking big. Don't 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 let them reinstitute the draft. <laughs> anyway, hello everyone. This is Opus 136 of the Triloquy Podcast, <laughs> the first uh, Opus of the Triloquy Podcast for Black History Month. So we're gonna uh, have a downbeat this week from God Himself. Has has anyone played God more than Morgan Freeman? I feel I like it's been so. even if it hasn't been more than one time. That's the that's the character that I think of him. And you know, <laughs> every time you see a meme with his picture. You automatically read it in his voice. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Of you, course. You just hear him. Of course. Well, um, about well, 12, 13 years ago, he made an appearance on 2020, and he had this to say on the subject of Black History Month. Black History Month, you find ridiculous. Why? You're going to relegate my history to a month? Oh, come well, on. What do you do with yours? What, which month is White History Month? July, by the way. <laughs> I'm Jewish. Look at him stammering. Okay. Which month is Jewish History Month? Uh, there isn't one. Oh. Oh. Why not? Yeah. Do you want one? No, no. No. I, 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 I don't either. I don't want a Black History Month. Black history is American history. How are we going to get rid of racism? Until... Stop talking about it. Hmm. I'm going to stop calling you a white man. I'm going to ask you to stop calling me a black man. I know you as Mike Wallace. You know me. All right. All right. Um, See, so you got all caught up in the voice. <laughs> what 
I'm not going to say anything first. I want to hear your thoughts on what we just listened to. <laughs> uh, I've heard people make all of those points. Mm -hmm. uh, my question to you is, um, why uh, <clears throat> ridiculous was the word that he used? Mm -hmm. Do why do you not understand his? Why do you not share? His perspective. I'll answer that question as long as you acknowledge the fact that you avoided my question. <laughs> I think that I pulled a Garrett. Okay. Yeah. All right. All right. We'll loop back. We'll, what, what did I think of that? Yes. I think that he makes valid points. Hmm. Okay. And I do not begrudge him his perspective. I sit and I listen to him and I give him, you know, I'm just saying that's your opinion, man. All yeah. right. And, and he's not waving it in my face. Yeah. So he can go and have it. That's my reaction is similar. I respect my elders. I respect my black elders. So Morgan Freeman can definitely have that opinion. I'm not going to try to uh, diminish or invalidate his opinion. And <laughs> <laughs> there are actual answers to some of those questions that mm -hmm. are often posed in a lackadaisical sort of way. First and foremost, the question of why is there a Black History Month? Well, folks who ask that question, I feel like don't understand that there used to be a Black History Week, week. alone. You know, one week out of the year to acknowledge Black people. You and know, it's the shortest as, as, month. As messed up as, uh, <laughs> you know, as race relations is in 2022, you know, go back when and imagine what the ecosystem was. So damn, we can't have a week to celebrate black achievement. And then of course that expanded into um, the month that we have now. Mm -hmm. And that expanded over into different countries. Not all countries is February. I think in England, Black History Month is October, actually. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, anyway, right. the, the concept spread across the globe. And now people around the globe have a time to specifically acknowledge the achievements of black folks, especially when we consider the way that the education system traditionally has centered that whiteness. We all know George Washington cut down the cherry tree, allegedly. And we all know about... Uh, uh, Abraham Lincoln being a vampire hunter or whatever, you know, they will, they, they will stretch that part of the history until we know it, know it. So why not have a, a month where, where we can specifically think about black folks, by the way, I say that uh, white history month is July because the 4th of July, and I'm just supposed to forget about the fact that my ancestors were slaves while y'all are around here talking about the rampers, red glare and stuff. So that's white history month then to me. It's, I thought it was every month. <laughs> you said it. You said it. Okay. So there's that point. The the, the, wrong. the the next point, and let me repeat myself. We love you, brother. Morgan Freeman, you know, leg legendary figure. And I hate to start Black History Month this way, but it's certain things that have to be acknowledged. Not talking about racism is how we got here. How often, and I'm, and this is not a, a judgment on you as much as just a statement of fact, how often was racism talked about in your periphery growing up? I'm sure there were times. How often was racism against black people a key discussion? Now, it's become more frequent the older that I get. So, yeah, so it was infrequent when it was in the formative years that I think you're talking about. So with that in mind, mm -hmm. <laughs> with the frequency of discussing racism growing, do you think we are closer to or further from anti-racism today than in your earlier years? Um, 
You think we're, you, you you think we're more racist now than we were twenty years ago as a society? 30 I think years we are. Ago? I think we are as racist and only more visible or vocal about it. I I feel like saying that we shouldn't talk about it toward getting rid of it is ridiculous. Trevor Noah That's said what I'm getting it after the 2016 election. Trevor Noah made a comment about how this election gave white supremacists. Like the, you know, they said all of a sudden, now we can be more open. Now we can be this way more vocally. Mm -hmm. And his joke, or maybe it was David Chappelle uh, uh, that. One of them. Yeah. But the joke was, no, no, no. You need to be just as quiet as you were before. You know, you need to be, you know, not publicly. Yeah. You know, that was the point being made. And that's, and I believe that. I think it's, I think it just became more visible. If anything, I feel like making it, more visible has struck something among, you know, the so-called good white person, the white folks who are striving toward anti-racism. I don't, you know, I often think about uh, the hashtag Me Too moment of a few years ago. I've never engaged women sexually, romantically, anything like that. So there are certain conversations that I have never thought about and had never been privy to. The visibility that violence against women, sexual violence against women was given in that moment woke me up mm. because I didn't have the opportunity to even think about that. And right. now I think about mm -hmm. that all the time. And how right. can I uh, promote gender equity as well as racial equity? So, you know, uh, in the same way, and not conversely, but in, in the same way, I feel like the visibility helps dismantle the racism because there are people who have to admit to themselves that it exists. Mm. So for me, that's why, and that's how talking about it leads us toward a less racist society because we have to see a thing to name a thing. See, and we have to name a thing to change a thing, but we can't change the thing or name the thing if we don't see the thing. And we're all measuring differently too, because when I... All right, let me start this again so I don't sound like I'm stammering. The change that I see happening within the structures they're happening in, mm -hmm. I feel the earth move. To other people who have been doing this work for of course. all their life, yeah. it's tiny. Yeah. So we have to talk about that too. Yeah. About what scale are you measuring this on? I mean, think about I think about the people who knew George Walker, mm -hmm. who are old mm -hmm. enough, maybe even to have known for a few years, William Grant still uh, Florence Price, who knew Duke Ellington. So if if uh, if an institution programs one of their pieces for Black History Month, of course, they're rolling their eyes when to some people, you know, that's a huge step because they've never heard those things anyway. And, and, and I, you know, as we're talking about this and the so-called ridiculousness or not of Black History Month, I also acknowledge that it has been hijacked traditionally, at least in a way, to relegate Black achievement to February. Mm -hmm. So I also understand that. Mm -hmm. I I've heard that too. I believe in it, though, because as we celebrate Black history as American history all year, February gives us a time to focus in on that in the same way that March gives us an opportunity to focus in on the accomplishments of women. Mm -hmm. You know, 
in uh, less problematically uh, in recent years, I'll say, you know, when we get to Cinco de Mayo, we're, we're taking the opportunity to learn more about that specific event and then the culture that surrounds it. You know, we focus in on gratitude and joy and, and capitalism in, <laughs> in uh, December, you know, so that that's not to say that we aren't happy and joyful all year round, but this is a time where we really put even more energy toward it. So in February, it's that for the black folks. I understand, you know, the broader point that he's making. I did a um a panel and of course I'm forgetting her name uh right now. She did the brown eye test, very famous white woman who's uh, an anti-racist and has been having those provocative conversations for a long time. Uh, y'all know who I'm talking about. I'm I'm just blanking right now. I get and fully understand and agree with the construction of whiteness and blackness and how at the end of the day we're a human race and x y and z i get that i feel like we aren't far enough from the origins of those constructions to just pretend like they're arbitrary i'm not seven generations hardly I, if i really count i think about what five generations from the plantation you mm -hmm. know from slavery mm -hmm. so you can't tell me that blackness is arbitrary because my connection to that directly impacts today and some of the decisions that I've had to make and, and some of the ways I, I see the world. Mm -hmm. And conversely, it's the same for, for white folks and anyone else. So I get the point, but we can't pretend like certain things and certain histories don't exist, you know, and I, I also understand that, you know, we all don't have to think the same way. We're not all a monolith. My reaction to Mr. Freeman's opinions on Black History Month, you know, are a, are a testament to that. We aren't all of the same mind, but there are certain things that Black History Month helps us get closer aligned with, you know, a decolonized way of looking at American history, a decolonized way of thinking about Black music, you know, within it. And then how can we move forward in this more equitable way, treating each other's accomplishments more equally based on the equity that's pushed through a concept like Black History Month? That's my idea on it. But, you know, we're we're, we're just a couple guys trying to change classical music, right? So-called classical music. Are you trying to tell me that he was basically <laughs> giving, you, giving you the all lives matter approach to Black History Month? I uh, I think so, but let's go ahead and, and get started. Scott Blankenship. And this is Triloquy, Opus 136. Thank you so much for tuning in. To returning listeners, thank you for continuing to return and really help Triloquy grow into its own little institution we, we, we have here. I've been talking with so many artists, managers, and, and representatives about uh, folks trying to uh, be on Triloquy as, as guests. I really 
appreciate all of that uh, warm energy and none of it will be possible without each and every one of you returning week after week. So thank you so much for continuing to go on this ride with us. To new listeners, Triloquy is a podcast that takes the phrase classical music and recontextualizes the music that we attach to that phrase, the conversations that we attach to that phrase, and everything in between. To learn more about the Triloquy podcast, to find out how you can donate and how you can support the show in other ways, just visit our website. That's T-R-I-L-L-O-Q-U-Y dot O-R-G. In addition to your support, support for Triloquy comes from Springboard for the Arts, a local organization here in St. Paul built to help artists create a living and a life. More information on Springboard for the Arts at springboardforthearts.org. I also want to send a shout out and a huge thank you to the Maria Issa from Minnesota State Representative District 62B for allowing me to host uh, the celebration event this past weekend. Scott, I've hosted a lot of things never hosted anything hip-hop adjacent so needless to cool. say i was a, i was a little nervous <laughs> i didn't know what i was gonna do because i'm not the i'm not the sort of guy that's like keg and case make some noise or, you know but i could hear you doing we, but we gotta we, we all have to stretch ourselves that's what being in community is about right doing what we can and even more so a huge shout out and thank you more information on how you can support maria isa at mariaisa.org those are all of my announcements for this week. So let's go ahead and hop into movement one. Let me get a, a couple of uh, really, really, really quick accidentals out of the way, Sharp, for, uh, out of the way, Scott. First and foremost, <laughs> I have a natural. Last week in the second movement, I celebrated this really incredible performance from the guitar that sounded just like an Indian raga, and really it was. Mm -hmm. I announced the artist as the title of the piece. The title was Rag Ahir Bajav, a morning raga. The guitarist goes simply by Sariputra. So be sure to go check out Sariputra and check out all of the incredible things that he's doing with the Western guitar playing his instrument in a different language, so yeah. to speak, as yeah. we were saying uh, last week. And then I also uh, want to send up a, a, a quick sharp uh, to not only the legacy of the late Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, whose birthday passed since the last time we recorded, but also to a member of the Triloquy family, incredible ethnomusicologist John Silpayamanat, for posting a happy birthday to the White Chevalier. <laughs> Beautiful. I mean, it's very good. Very good. <laughs> because they called the man the Black Mozart forever, right? right, right. Anyway, I'm, I'm I'm glad that not that only very good. not not only is the ecosystem getting a little bit of a sense of humor, but getting a sense of humor that's connected to some activism. You see, there's always something serious in the mix. You know, even the the sweetest dessert has a little salt in it, right? Mm -hmm. So we have to be sure to you know keep keep that energy going. Anyway, huge shout out to John Sopayamanat and. Uh, I suppose a happy birthday to the late Mozart. I mean, the world's most famous artist, history's most famous musician, I would uh, say. Among so, them, sure. Yeah, for sure. All right. And then, of course, as as is every week at this point, I don't know, maybe we need to have a, another section uh, to the to the opus, some some rest and, and powers that uh, we, we have to offer. First and foremost, to Chelsea Christ 
it's it's been really i hope i'm pronouncing your uh, last name correctly i heard about this a few days ago and it's been going around everywhere if you don't know uh chelsea made history as the oldest miss usa champion in the 68 year history of the show at age 28 um, in addition to that she was uh an attorney emmy award nominated just was doing all sorts of stuff and, and, and an incredible figure out here uh since her death she died by suicide there have been a lot of uh attention put on some of her tweets and mm -hmm. uh, in particular one essay and i'm gonna read um an excerpt from this essay because i think it's really important for us to think about and talk about it uh she's she wrote here i nearly worked myself to death literally until an eight-day stint in a local hospital sparked the development of a new perspective i discovered that the world's most important question especially when asked repeatedly and answered frankly is why? Why earn more achievements just to collect another win? Why pursue another plaque or medal or line item on my resume if it's for vanity's sake rather than out of passion? Why work so hard to capture the dreams I've been taught by society to want when I continue to find only emptiness? That question, why, Scott, I think takes a lot of courage to honestly ask. And while Chelsea lost the battle, against suicide and, and mental health, we all need to ask ourselves that question, why? I have the privilege to get to ask myself that question every day when I wake up. Why am I going to walk into this studio and work on something or research something or interview somebody or whatever you know I'm, I'm doing on a day-to-day on a -day basis? Why? And I feel like there's passion behind it. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I feel like a lack of passion and the expectation to keep that drive going can really be a deadly combination. I agree with you. Um, I did not know her work. I did not. I, yep. I, um, tell me again about how I might recognize her if, you know, just. I mean, Miss, Miss USA, it was the most famous thing for me, but uh, mm. she was a, a, a television correspondent you know so probably and, in, and, and maybe you you know maybe you aren't uh you know even not being familiar with her you can't deny that being an attorney and on tv and miss usa requires a lot of work far beyond what sure. either of us do yeah <laughs> I would or have done to say, sure yeah yeah i agree um i mean but what do you think i guess what do you think about that question why do you do you what, what what's your relationship with with that question um i i haven't asked that that much in my background, which is, I, I, I guess, you know, a testament to how I got where I am. Mm -hmm. um, not really a big risk taker because of how I was brought up. Yeah. And it's very difficult to start to retrain yourself after so much repetition. We're talking decades of repetition for me. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, again, the changes that I've made and the work that I'm doing now might not register for a lot of people, but in the circles that I work in, um, mountains are being moved right now, in my opinion. And certainly when we look back at the time, the change, you know, doesn't happen in front of your eyes. It happens over time. Right. So mm -hmm. I think that's always important to think about and acknowledge rest in peace and rest in power to Chelsea Christ. Who else passed away recently? Scott? Howard Hessman. Um, you might recognize Howard Hessman as Charlie Moore on Head of the Class, but I knew him as Dr. Johnny Fever from WKRP in Cincinnati. 
1980s and early 90s, uh, no, just a 1980s mm-hmm. television show where he played Dr. Johnny Fever, who when the, <clears throat> excuse me, when the series opens up, it's sort of a uh, 101 strings sort of radio station, uh, all schmaltz. And he's the morning guy and he can hardly stay awake and he gets to change the format in grand fashion. Mm. Now, what did his character, because you have to remember, I barely know what this show is. So a lot of people have never heard of it. Mm -hmm. Who was his character on this show? And what do you think we were supposed to learn from that character, considering what we just uh, were talking about with overworking, asking yourself the question, why all of those things? Well, that era, DJs moved around a lot. You might as well not even fully unpack. Mm -hmm. You get a storage facility and some, something where if you break the lease, it's not going to break you. Sure. And you might find yourself working at the greatest station in the country one week. And then the next you're uh, doing polka in Sheboygan, Mm -hmm. you know? So, um, he represented somebody that in one respect was getting ground up by the system and at the same time had a spark for the medium that they believed it was. And I think it's evidenced in that when he does get to change the format from this easy listening over to rock, Mm -hmm. you see him light up because all of a sudden now he's talking about what he cares about. And And, and and now there's what in his work, passion. Mm -hmm. It's not just him falling asleep at the controls every day, trying to stay awake. Now he has a reason. He to has care. an investment and uh, he gets to say booger on the air. <laughs> so that that's, it's, that's why I wanted to just bridge that gap because when we talk about transforming, maybe you know you can use the phrase changing the format of so-called classical music, radio stations, concert halls, and everything in between. I feel like you can have a little bit of that, and it doesn't necessarily have to be a a, a switch from the easy listening to the rock or whatever happened in WKRP, uh, but. I think that that idea is important mm-hmm. and that inspires me to think about the passion that can be infused in countless people, the musicians, the hosts, the the researchers, musicologists, the the uh, the program note writers. Shout out to Delaney. You know, that that could grow, mm-hmm. that that passion can grow and it's only going to enrich the field. So uh, rest in peace to Howard Hessman as well. Do you happen to remember I'm putting you on the spot? what the song was that flipped the, of course, you know, that flipped the format. Um, actually, they did not know if this show was going to get picked up. So everything was done on a really low budget. It was just some generic sound that they did, some generic band that they Oh, it wasn't, paid, it wasn't an and actual. And they didn't have to, they didn't have to license it. Oh, It was all, it was all improv. And you can even tell by the credits, they didn't think that this was going anywhere because it looked like they set up, the camera right outside the studio pointed at the river on a cloudy day and there's a tugboat going by and that's in the credits. Okay. Well, (laughs) I I don't have time to sit here and search for that moment in the show, but at least the theme song when it comes to music, you know, is this, is this one of the classics? Is this a classic uh, television theme song? Cincinnati WKR. I can't see it. Got kind of packing and unpacking Town to town, up and down the dial Maybe you and me were never meant to 
Cincinnati. You know, they don't really sing theme songs anymore, mm-hmm. do they? That was a, that's a, a relic of that part, that era of, in the industry. Yeah, So smooth. So smooth. Yep. All, all those. Anyway, I hope folks understand the point I'm making. After every accidental, every week, I feel like I have to reiterate my point. Let's think about not only when it comes to the legacy of Chelsea, the way that she was in that essay talking about that lack of passion. Let's connect that to the story of of Howard Hessman's character on WKRP and how shifting things can breed that passion and how we could all be better from that, you know, anyway. It lit a fire because up to that point, he had to look at his coffee mug to figure out which morning name he was. <laughs> right. And right. then Dr. Johnny Fever was born in that moment. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, shout out to what was the name, man's name? Venus Flytrap. Venus Flytrap. Who was Tim it? Reed. Tim Reed. Yeah. Great show. You have. I don't think you can stream it, but you have it on DVD. So if y'all want to watch right. it, y'all just got to call Scott. All right. Uh, what you got accidental wise? Uh, I wanted to highlight this story that came out two days ago. I found it on N and National Public Radio. Is this a a sharp? This is a sharp, right. Um, There is a book that is out called The Violin Conspiracy, and the headline goes, The Violin Conspiracy Shows What It Can Be Like to Play Classical Music While Black. Mm. And to give you the broad strokes, what it is is the author, Brendan Slocum, uh, is a violinist and he teaches and plays, you know, out in the community. And he wrote basically his life experience as a novel. Mm. And he did what he had to do in certain spot, spots, you know, to amp up the drama or to change things so that people's names were protected or whatever it is, you know. So he, he, he made a, a, um, a novelization of his life. How about mm-hmm. that? Yeah. Um, there were a lot of things that he talked about that the interviewer would ask him now are you serious this happened this actually went down and he says well you know i changed it so that people wouldn't be able to tie my family to it or whatever but there was one in particular that i thought was a really good hook in the novel um this is uh, the interviewer uh in the novel it seems like it's not just the pressure of white or black people who are threatening ray's career He is at one point sued by his own family when he's also facing a legal claim that he, that the descendants of slave owners who owned his ancestors say the violin is actually rightfully theirs. So he's trying to find. Yeah. So his violin got stolen while he's uh, going to play the Tchaikovsky competition and the uh he he gets sued over actual violin over the ownership of the violin. Oh, I can't. Okay, but that is an interesting story. So you say that's not one of the ones he's exaggerating. Right. Oh my goodness gracious. Not the not the violin also a slave. <laughs> the violin itself. You know, and, didn't and, we have the few I'm not trying to make a joke, but did we have the Fugitive Slave Act? So mm-hmm. now this stolen by anyway, go ahead. I think it's a great <laughs> example of work being done at different levels because um while he might not be, you know, uh out there playing with uh, the likes of um, Gooseby. Oh, Rand- Randall Gooseby, Randall yeah. Gooby, you know, so he might not be out there and have the platform that Randall Gooseby has, mm-hmm. but he found a different way through this book. When I think about musical aesthetics, I'm also thinking about literary aesthetics. So the aesthetic of the book Twilight, 
is very different than the aesthetic of Harry Potter is very different than the aesthetic of Fifty Shades of Grey, mm -hmm. right? You know, so I'm just making sure you understand what I'm saying. What do you see as the general aesthetic of this book? As spicy as some of these stories are, I'm sure, is this for a different audience than the typical classical audience that's around today? Who do you think the audience is? I asked you, ask you. I know, but you always ask me and you make me say black people. So now I want you to say who you think the who this is for. I'm not sure if it's for me. I'll say that. I'm not sure it's for me. Okay. But and as we were talking about at the very opening with the downbeat Morgan Freeman, shedding light on some of these issues is important and that and that turns a light bulb on for certain people so for the people who need that light bulb turned on this is for them okay so I'm, that's what i was going to say is that some people need to start out at privilege 101 sure before they go on to 110 and, and maybe i shouldn't and, say that because i'm sure that there are some black folks who know nothing about classical music, but are attached to the fact that this is a black man talking about all this stuff that could be engaging for them. So I shouldn't, I, I, I shouldn't dismiss the, the, the book. The so story. you're right. That's the point that I was going to make is because each week I come over here and I'm stepping into a space where there are people who don't like me who, and say so mm -hmm. and think, okay, anyway, so we know that that exists. So why shouldn't a black person come over and try to talk to the white people in a sim in a similar way. No, I I, I agree. And to work at that level. And and it's very important. You know, now you're going to have me reading this book. So now I'm <laughs> now I'm now I'm officially curious the more I the more I think about it. Uh, I I think it's a a great example of another way to deliver the message. Yeah. And and if it if it's if it doesn't sound like it's your bag Maybe you know somebody that that would be a good starting point for. Yeah, yeah. I live. Remind me, uh, is Violin Conspiracy by uh, uh, Brendan Slocum. By Brendan Slocum. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, that, that sounds exciting. I'll have uh, links to that in the description. Before we uh, move on real quick, I just need to say that, yes, there are plenty of people who don't like you, who feel away. I think we all have that. I, I certainly have that. The people who don't like you aren't in positions of power. They, they aren't gatekeepers. So I think that's the difference. So, you know, to all of y'all who have something to say about Scott or to Scott, you saying it to me as well. Okay. So if you have an attitude, send it to me and deal with me because mm. you're not about to have Anyway, I'm, I'm trying to take up for you. I appreciate I'm doing my best. that. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to um, transition out of this story about the violin conspiracy with a uh, little excerpt from a performance by Black Violin. I can't remember whether or not we we had to have featured them on Triloquy at some point, but they're a violin duo who is out here just doing the Lord's work. This is their flip on uh, one of the Brandenburg concertos. The track is called Brandenburg. Music here is performed by Black Violin. Again, we're talking about Howard Hessman, right? You have in real life been at radio stations where the format flips, yep. right? Where it changes. Okay. So let's say we're not talking about a complete format flip because I don't think what we just heard should be disqualified as a piece of classical music, you know, just to, to make that point as an aside. You're at work and 
this is on this is on your playlist and you're probably not paying attention because you see Brandenburg on the playlist and you're like oh, okay whatever you you click go you know you hit the number one button or whatever and you hear that something like that's Re, happened that's... Re, react where's my where, where, where's my button here we go well I might what are you stand... gonna do in the moment in the moment <laughs> what am I gonna turn it off <laughs> I'm asking you, what I, are you going to do? What am I going to do to get to the top of the hour? No, I would let it ride. I would let it ride. And that's it's easy to do because if anybody complains, I can say, well, I'm going to forward your comment on to the music director. Thank you. And if somebody come, writes in and says, this is great, I say, I'm going to forward your comment on to the music director. Thank you. <laughs> it's the, I, I am just the intermediary. But I would talk about it. I would give it a good break. And I've played music with an electronic beat behind it recently because I had to fill oh, in. Oh, really? For, yeah, oh, I had, yeah. I had to fill in a couple extra eclectics, the two-hour show that Steve Seal does with all the you know living composers. Mm -hmm. I need and, to. I need to challenge my. I think we all need to challenge ourselves because <laughs> I can see myself in that position, and I can see myself wanting to instantly not apologize for it, but you know to say to the audience, "Look, I know that's a little different for some of y'all." It's okay, to, you know, or however see, I will form that break. But see, I, I, we, I think we need to evolve to the point to where we wouldn't even do that and talk about instead of their, excuse my language, white feelings, who black violin actually is or make the break about that, you know. Exactly. And that's something right. I put on myself as well. Right. Don't go the apology route. Don't go the get ready for this route. You know, right. instead you promote it. Right. You talk, you, you give it all the ups rather than the hey, be careful because this is different than what you're used to hearing or whatever you're going to say. If I remember, there was a piece of music down in Knoxville that I used to air every Valentine's Day. And it was one of those, okay, listen, this is going to be a little different for y'all, but mm. it's only two minutes. <laughs> and you, <laughs> I, I hope I can remember to uh, to play it. I don't think it's by a black composer, but yeah. In interest, I, I, I see that moment for you before you retire from classical radio, you are going to have an 808 to deal with. Mm. And it's probably going to make a BuzzFeed or some, somebody's going to take that break <laughs> and put it on their podcast. Mm. So you be mindful of that. Okay. Cool. <laughs> cool. All right. Well, uh, uh, I have, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll keep it just to uh, those few accidentals this week. I have one more. I'm going to give it a sharp and I'm going to give it to the annual Sphinx conference and competition. Uh, online again, right? Online again. It was supposed to be in person. I paid my registration fee and everything, but you know they they pulled the plug on it uh, being in person. Understandably so. Um, you know, I, I feel like the main reason that many of us attend every year is to network and to hang out. I mean, um, there there are people in real positions of power at this point who you have sat across the table with, not only in a shirt and tie capacity, but at a loose meat sandwich at 1 a.m. capacity as well, mm, you know? So, my favorite. <laughs> so at the Sphinx competition, I'm talking about for folks who don't know. So anyway, so it's always going to be a little different if it can't be in person, but the virtual conference offered a lot and I really uh, enjoyed checking it out as an onlooker. I'm usually participating in some way. I think this was the first time in like 10 years where I wasn't doing anything uh, with Sphinx. And I'm going I'm to I'm keep it real. This podcast is called Triloquy. At first, 
I took that personally. There's, somewhere I need to add it to the uh, board. Somewhere there's uh, Michael Jordan saying that, and I took that personally. <laughs> but anyway, um, you got a lot on your plate, though. I uh, I have a lot on my plate, and you know, after thinking about it and chanting over it, what I realized was that. My concern is not about me having another microphone or some more exposure or something. I just wanted to make sure that the hundreds, if not thousands of people who've used Sphinx as the epicenter for this sort of work, these sorts of conversations, I wanted to make sure they were getting the, the realness of it as well as some of the institutional perspectives on some of these conversations. So, you know, it, it wasn't about me just wanting to be in all of the rooms. I just wanted to make sure that all of these people had an opportunity to hear something real and they absolutely fucking did. Okay. So I'm just going to uh, highlight a few moments that I um, appreciated. First and foremost, uh, I watched a panel facilitated by my teacher, my former teacher, Lacolian Washington, shout out to Lacolian. Uh, it was a panel about the new CEO. So we had uh, Lacolian there who runs his organization in uh, Boston. Uh, Melissa Nan, shout out to Melissa Nan. She uh, is at the head of the American Composers Orchestra. And, you know, all kind of folks, you know, who are relatively young and now in charge of these organizations sitting around and talking about what the path forward looks like. Well, Anwar Nazir, who is uh, in charge now of the Louisiana Philharmonic Orchestra down in uh, New Orleans, he had a couple spicy things to say. First and foremost, he said that predominantly white institutions are predominantly white by design. Racism is denying that as a fact and anti-racism is accepting that as a fact. What are your thoughts on that? Because most, if not all of the, I shouldn't say all, but certainly most of the so-called classical institutions across the ecosystem are, if not all white, predominantly white. So what yeah, is to be I done with that, that, and from that statement? I think that you can go back to any number of Triloquy past opuses and find that we've been talking about this quite a bit. And the one that leaps out is um, the one where I was talking about John Coltrane's love supreme. Mm -hmm. You know, you have to acknowledge the problem. You have to apologize. And then you have to persevere. You have to go forward without doing that again. Mm -hmm. And then I, isn't the end forgiveness then asking for forgiveness? Sure. So I can, yeah, I can't. You, yeah. you know the movements more than I do. Um, so, yeah, but you see what I mean that there's, yeah. a, there, there's a step, there's a process. And that sounds like a great first step. Yeah. Yeah. And shout out to Anwar. I mean, it's, I, I, I don't have the capacity. If I canceled everything and only did the job that he has, I don't have the capacity for it because mm. they just wouldn't, <laughs> I feel like they wouldn't have me up there because I would, I would talk to the, uh, the music director or whatever one time. And by the time that season is playing, the board is going to be like, okay, we need to get him out of here. <laughs> oh, no. uh, but, <laughs> but so, so shout out to uh, Anwar. Uh, I wrote something down here that Lacolian said, I, I know that, you know, we have covered this a few times, several times, but it's always worth repeating. He said, change is slow. That statement is a statement of privilege. And I feel like we just need to revisit that idea as often as we can, because there are folks for whom change is urgent and needs to happen for the sake of our success and our happiness, our passion in the field. And there are people for whom that change doesn't have to happen, despite 
you know, your feelings on certain topics, or if you're a good person or a bad person, the fact of the matter is across the gender lines, across the race lines, there are people in certain positions who don't need change to happen right now. Okay. So how do we, how do we deal with that? You know, you're one of these people and let's keep it real, who does not need change to happen right now to have a successful career. You know, what do you do? What, where do you get the fuel for that sense of urgency? It's not maintaining yourself. So what is that fuel? I love, pro I love public broadcasting. I want to see it progress. Mm. I want to see it last. I want to see it be as meaningful as it was for me when I was coming up in both television and radio and now online. I want mm -hmm. it to be successful. And in order to do that, we cannot follow this same path. And what Lacolian just said, that people were getting the fire emojis out, when I say it, <laughs> I'm the dick. Well, right? But the, but the truth is the truth, right? That's, uh, that's why I said it. Yeah. And if it caused someone to, if it lit a fire under somebody to, to actually pay attention and start making changes, then I will take all the hits. Mm -hmm. But I don't have evidence of that yet. So what we need, we need people who love the art forms, orchestra, chamber music, radio, more than they love how it currently looks mm -hmm. or how they think I've, it should be. If you want it to survive, there are certain things that you have to do if, if you love it right. that much. And I also realize that in order for it to survive, that means people like me stepping away from the microphone. Mm -hmm. And I want to help as many people who are not white men get on a microphone and tell their stories do the shows they want to do and shape their sound the way they want to shape it. That is my goal. And we've talked about this before as well. It's very noble for people to want to step back from, for more stories to be told. What are they stepping into? What, what, and I'm not saying you specifically, but what are you, what are, what are people leaving behind? If you leave, you know, let, let's, let's uh, picture the image of the, of the corner office mm -hmm. and you want equity in the building politics. So, you know, you leave the corner office for the person of color to work out of there. If you've left papers all over the floor, if the desk is turned over, if there are pictures on the wall that re don't represent the diversity of whatever, you know, that is not a space that's safe for that person, or at the very least, that a space that requires labor out of that person of color before they can even get started. And I feel like that's what we're doing in the arts field so often. We're creating these spaces, some people, not all, we're creating these spaces, but at the same time, we aren't making sure that those safe spaces are safe mm -hmm. or that people can be successful in those spaces. So I just think, you know, I feel like I have to name that because it requires both of those things. It requires some of us to step back. And before we step back, we have to make sure that we're creating something or, or we've cultivated something that another person can be successful in. Mm -hmm. You know, I picture Triloquy one day way down the line to continue without us, you mm -hmm. know, to maybe to have a couple uh, women here doing the work under the brand. I have to make sure that I cultivate and maintain this project so that it can live in someone else's arms. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's a that's a part of the conversation that we're missing at the at, at the institutional level when we're talking about putting 
of the black person in this orchestra? Is it safe for that black person in this orchestra? Do the members of that orchestra have the ability to uh, celebrate and in an equitable way uh, honor the work of that person, you know, just as as one of, of countless examples. So. I 100% understand your perspective. I have to come at it playing the long view mm -hmm. of if, if I don't do this, if I don't try to find the next generation of yeah. broadcasters and, and classical musicians, then I don't know that the work is going to continue at, how do I put it? I, I don't know who else is going to do it to the degree that I am. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I watched, and, uh, I, I watched a documentary all week instead of watching Jada Jackson, I was watching this documentary about Rajrish. Maybe you remember, uh, the, the Indian guru who mm, mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. lived in Oregon for a while and there was a drama. A yeah. yeah. Got um, violent, you know, uh, and a, a statement that was made on both sides of the argument, the townspeople of Antelope and the folks in the commune was, you know, all, I don't have it verbatim, but all evil needs is for good men to do nothing, you know? And that's what I hear you're saying right now. If you're not going to do it, you are doing nothing, which means you're actually participating in the active maintenance of these spaces. Mm -hmm. You got right to essentially what I was trying to say is that if I didn't try to find the next generation or help the next generation mentor in some way, um, then I wouldn't be in the position to help at all mm -hmm. and then nothing changes yeah or it goes even slower than it's perceived in the past right or, or then it should be or whatever right see all of again back to my point of of being relieved to hear some of these conversations happening for the people again who see sphinx as that epicenter. Mm. I know that I can engage the conversation and have the privilege of being able to in, in certain ways. And I was just so glad to see other people really digging into these conversations and and uh, and and not really putting people's feelings in front of what needs to be said. You know, uh, Michael Bobbitt, who was also on that panel, he had me in here screaming at my desk. He said <laughs> he wants to know how diverse is your contact list? Mm -hmm. Are the photos in your phone diverse? <laughs> mm. <laughs> and I put that on social media and I think that's just another incredible point. We have leaders in the field, the best meaning of them don't actually have uh, real proximity to communities of color. So what? Right. So, so how does that shape the way that you think a fellowship should go or hiring a black person should go? What, you know, what do you understand about the conversations you need to have around Black History Month, right. around Kwanzaa, point. around yeah. Juneteenth, all of those things. So that's something that we have to think about as well. A person is not qualified in 2022 for leadership positions in the arts if they do not have real proximity to diverse communities right. and that's just that um anyway we're we're, we're we're running along here already but i did but before we get you know away from this accidental into the second movement i just want to offer a huge shout out to katie and delaney you know who did a live taping of classically black this year for first thing something that i wrote down here that katie said she said black people do everything so when we're talking about finding talent and developing talent and all of those things it's already out here black folks have learned i mean if we if we play hockey i've been hearing about black hockey players lately mm -hmm. if we can do that 
of course we can play the violin okay so stop playing like you have to find the talent okay anyway shout out to classically black and uh, katie and delaney and then of course the um the main panel that i wanted to make sure i caught i was able to get the title of it was shame or reframe it was sort of a conversation about activism versus collaborative initiatives with institutions and x y and z aaron dworkin was on this panel alongside Quanice floyd Titus Underwood and Daniel Bernard remain all three of which have been on Triloquy and we've mm -hmm. had these uh, conversations and Quanice was really, really, really laying it out. I mean, I have to offer a round of applause for uh, Quanice. She, and, you know, as high up as she is in her career and in proximity to these powerful institutions, she is the first to acknowledge that the inside work has to happen alongside the outside work. And I feel like so many folks on the inside diminish the quality and the necessity of the grassroots anti-racist activists, the folks who are doing their own things, you know, the, the entrepreneurs in these spaces. I feel like that unbalance kind of maintains that schism. And I just hope, you know, Kwanis sp specifically has inspired me. I just hope that we can learn to see each other you know, those of us who want change from the outside and, and do it some way, maybe we call out institutions or we have a blog or a social media thing or a podcast or, or whatever. I want to see that work leveled, not leveled. I, I, I want to see that work put on the same level as the VP of whatever at this opera organization who's doing this thing or, you know, the folks, you at your job at Minnesota Public Radio. I want those two things to be valued equally. Do you think, I mean, from, from your inside perspective, do you think that that value is, is, is seen for the outside work? Uh, I, personally value people who are on the ground at the protests and marches and you know getting on tv and radio and all that that mm -hmm. um hats off to you that's not me and we need you to do that and i respect that but i 100 percent agree with what you're saying about seeing each seeing these things on the same level because there are people on the inside that are doing great things yeah and uh if they're doing them properly they're not bragging about it so uh, agreed. We should be able to see these on the same level. What I do to try to, is that what you're asking me? What I do to acknowledge the, 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 on the. Sure. Or, or on the or, ground work or, or what you, what you do to affirm yourself as on the same side as the person fighting for change from the outside. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, I, I have to show them. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I have to, most of the people that I'm going to be interacting with on that way don't trust me in the first place. So I have to just know that and be ready for it and earn the trust. And I don't think that's racial. See, that's the thing. You, you, you hit the nail on the head there. There are some, I'll speak for myself. I, I, I won't try to speak broadly. I am often challenged by allegations of change on the inside because we can't see it. We don't see things put on the line and folks like me, I have to live publicly, mm -hmm. you know, I have to do this work in front of everyone. Right. So at the very least, I need folks to acknowledge the privilege to go to this board meeting and having this uncomfortable conversation and getting in your car and going home and enjoying the fruits of your salary when there are so many of us who don't have mm -hmm. those things, mm -hmm. you know, so I'm, I'm going to work on me. I'm going to uh, do my best to 
do a better job of acknowledging inside work because I do fully affirm that it is happening. I just need the favor returned. I need folks within these institutions to consider themselves compatriots right, with right. those of us and our work as equally vital. And that's what Kwanis did on that panel. She really affirmed the fact that you do not have to be working in one of these big boxes to inspire change or, or, or to have your change work be valid or considered valid. Incredible conversations happened um, at this Sphinx conference. Congratulations to uh, Afa Dworkin and Aaron Dworkin, to all of the speakers. Huge congratulations. I didn't mention the competition yet. Huge congrats to Kibra Seyun Charles, a bassist who actually won the Sphinx competition. That, that doesn't cool. happen very often. Um, and actually, um, this musician was featured, uh, his music was featured on Trilloquy before. So I, I, I always feel good feeling like I'm uh, in the mix. And then um, I just wanted to also offer a shout out as we transition into the second movement to Rhiannon Giddens. She gave the um, opening keynote uh, for the for the Sphinx conference. Are you, are you very familiar with, uh, with her work, her music? Uh, some of it. Only recently she showed up in the headlines. They uh, announced that uh, she's pregnant. Yeah, yeah. Congratulations. So, yeah, congratulations and and uh, and and warm thoughts on uh, on on your on your pregnancy journey. Rian and Giddens, you know, is an uh, and she's been suggested as, as a guest many times. I'm sure she's way too busy for me. I'll, I'll 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 send an email, but you know, the way in which she engages what we call what what a lot of people would uh, recognize as folk music, you mm -hmm. know, folk TM, you know, mm -hmm. what, what, however you want to say, and just showcasing the black origins of it. You know, we kind of talked about that with uh, Rissy Palmer, but right. as we decolonize the phrase classical music, we also have to remember that country and folk and all of these other uh, autochthonous American aesthetics, if not involved in blackness is rooted in that blackness. And I just love that uh, Rhiannon Giddens is out here doing the good work in that way in the world of folk music. So to get us into the second movement, we're gonna listen to a tune called Black Eyed Dog. This is featuring both Rhiannon Giddens and Ben Harper. before we get into the second movement. He said, Rhiannon and I are both black purveyors of American roots music. And while this is not an anomaly, it is an exception within a subculture. It's, it's really interesting how something common can be marginalized. Sure. You know, I never, I never would have considered folk music or, or what they call here roots music as something that I should care about or consider myself as having some proximity to, but here we are. I'm a little irritated. I didn't know about this project, so I'm writing this down. Oh yeah, Black Eyed Dog. I'll have it in the in the description. We're here in the second movement where Scott and I take some music that we have been listening to, some music that we appreciate, and instead of repeating it fully here, we take the second ending and sort of speak to its significance to us. We're in Black History Month, Scott, and I think along those same lines of uh, roots music and folk music being Black, 
you bringing in some, you know, we've talked about the slide guitar here before mm -hmm. and how, and how I feel about that aesthetic. You've opened my eyes to so many black slide guitar players and, and, uh, traditions. So, you know, this one's different. Okay. And go for, for it. Yeah. And I don't know the correct pronunciation of his name. If it's actually AJ gent or if it's agent, oh, you know, or agent, okay. okay. Something like that. So, um, apologies if I, if I bungled it. However, his sound is rooted in the slide technique, right? But lap steel. So when I say lap steel, do you know what I mean? Mm -mm. Okay, so imagine that twang in and out of the notes, that sliding in and out of the notes, but the guy's sitting at a table and he's got all the strings set out in front of him. Okay. And he's playing it on his lap. Mm -hmm. Okay. Imagine playing a regular guitar on your lap and then standing up. And doing so that. instead of coming underneath the fretboard like you would to form a chord, he's coming in on top. Technique that I have not seen before. This is he's the first guy I've ever seen sure. doing this. And what I think is the end result is a much more singing sort of a quality in the guitar. The way that he he uh, he he so accurately rises and falls up against uh, up and down the uh, intonation the you're saying is right. impeccable and so and he's hitting all of these things and and not slurring them together it's it's punctuated but but connected <laughs> so what do you call the glass thing he's holding that I, i'm sure you put your finger in and another what, what, well, they, is there they a name used for to, that they used to use uh, empty bottles. So sometimes they're called a bottle slide. I just hear people say, hand me my glass. Um, I like to use brass and ceramic. point is what what I think is interesting and and uh exceptional about this performance in particular is that it showcases his spin on a classic. I mean, when we talk about defining classical music and all of that stuff, if going up yonder is not a classic, there's no such thing as a classic. I mean, shout out to Tremaine Hawkins who mm. um from from in my experience made the made the song famous. So I think there's that bridge to be uh uh to be built as well. We have folks who understand the aesthetics and the technique of that style of music. And then you have, you know, tr generations of black folks who hear that and hear themselves. You know, they hear someone singing that in church because of course we can sing it, you know, but now he is translating it to the guitar. Really, really in, in incredible stuff by agent, I hope, or a or AJ Gent. That's, that's pretty. That's pretty good. I think it's it? agent, maybe. Right. We'll, we'll we'll have to double check that. But you said that in the Southern Church and in the Black churches, that's Sunday morning. That you, you I, just get that. Yeah. I, the the trope is, you know, musicians are at least where I'm from. Musicians are busy on the weekend because Saturday night you're playing the bar. And on Sunday morning, you're playing the church, you know, right. and these are the same musicians and this is the same sound and same aesthetics. They, they, they wouldn't do that at my church <laughs> that I went to regularly, but, but that definitely exists. And I really, really appreciate the connection between that aesthetic 
and a classic mm. composition. I would point everybody to his social media on Instagram. He has some absolutely incredible videos that he's shared from live performances and things. Mm -hmm. And most recently, he's been posting little riffs and then letting it play out and asking people to respond. Sure. sure. You know, so also, he must have a TikTok because that's where they do that. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Probably, but I'm I'm not going there. I get it on Instagrams. Agent. Bravo. Bravo. All right. Well, uh, this week I wanted to bring back an ensemble that I had showcased before as a transitional thing. Several weeks ago, I uh, played some music by a group called 24 Carat Black. We were talking about the Cincinnati, uh, speaking of WKRP, you know, mm. uh, tying it all in. We were talking about, remember when the Cincinnati Orchestra, I think, uh, got a new contract and we were talking about all their new money or right, or right. so I, I the connection i made was finding a black cincinnati ensemble anyway i want to bring them back because i've been listening to their music ever since and they deserve a little bit more attention at least from me so the group is called 24 Carat black i'm just going to read a little bit of their information for the sake of uh, black history here it says that they were an american soul and funk band who recorded in the early 70s although they only released one album uh the uh, the album called Ghetto Misfortune's Wealth. Uh, their music has been sampled numerous times and considered uh, a classic among many. It was uh, the album was produced and arranged by Dale Warren, who was the nephew of uh, Barry Gordy, one of Barry Gordy's wife. So you know the, all of that music uh, industry, industry stuff. The band was known originally as uh, I forget. Uh, let me uh, scan here the. Uh, Italians. I think I'm pronouncing that right, but uh, Dale Warren was like, no, we need a new name. How about mm. 24 Karat Black? Anyway, so he worked with them and created this work of art. It's so symphonic, especially near the beginning. I, I, I've played some of it before, but the specific track that I've been repeating is called Food Stamps. So you probably don't know about that. You don't know about no food stamps. Mm -hmm. <laughs> My mom used to buy them from people because you can only buy food with the food stamps, right. which means you can't buy diapers for your child. You can't buy a bottle, you know, you know, right. uh, so, so she would do that, you know, to, to help folks out. So I remember the different colors. They have the EBT cards now. Anyway, the track is called food stamps. And what it reminds me of is how important it is to not get caught up in making things more complicated than they have to be. This tune goes, and all it is is a few different layers. And I've had it on repeat, so let's listen to a little bit of this. Food Stamps by 24 Karat Black. You think uh, they play that on WKRP? What would what, what that make the what, maybe what that make the play? Maybe list? on Venus flytraps. Yeah, <laughs> there are so many. he had a gong. Oh, he sure did, did he? Yeah, there are so many ensembles, black ensembles, who we will never talk about in the same way that we talk about the Supremes 
or the Vandalas or, you know, any of these groups. 24 Karat Black is an ensemble that I just happened to stumble upon mm. trying to make a connection uh, producer wise with the city of Cincinnati. And now and I, I guess they're going to the Super Bowl now. Right. Cincinnati Bengals. I don't know. Don't ask me about sports. I don't know. Um, <laughs> uh, but. You know, go go check out Twenty Four Karat Black again. The album is called What's the name of the album? Uh, uh, Ghetto Misfortunes Wealth, and actually that title track is dope as well. I almost brought that in, but you know, when we talk about building music, you're the composer of Triloquy's uh, musical themes. When we're you know uh, dealing with them before we release it, I feel like more than we're adding things at the end we're taking things away that's right you know so that that's that's the concept that, that that's why i'm bringing that in because listening to it over and over again all week just reminded me of that when we create things it, and it doesn't necessarily even have to be music maybe it doesn't have to be so ornamented even though uh shout out to the producer though because you know that once this was all laid down even mm -hmm. though there is only four or five tracks they still went in and did fine-tuning oh, on yeah, each of one of those especially that, back then you have to do it on tape right. or whatever y'all were doing that's it's called <laughs> magnetizing it well anyway those are our picks for this week so uh those will be in the uh, description of this for you to check out all right we're getting into the third movement as i mentioned before i am so honored to have featured today Shayna rush from the old guard drum and fife corps of the united states of america so when you watch the inauguration and that sort of things. Mm -hmm. The folks dressed up in those colonial uniforms and those powder wigs. And that's a conversation we actually get into, of course, knowing me. Right. But, but uh, she she's there. Uh, she's this black flutist who has uh, not only opened up that world to so many more people, just being there as a representative, she has dug into the research of understand of helping folks understand the black history specifically of drum and fife corps. It's really interesting when you go back and think about the Revolutionary War. They didn't want to give black folks a gun, so they gave us a fife and a drum. But goodness gracious, what what have we done with those instruments over these hundreds of years? You mm -hmm. know, um, so uh, Shana uh, speaks to that the black history of drum and fife and what it's like to be a, a military musician. We, we often talk about airmen and um, and, and army people and uh, seamen, sea women and all of those things, but we don't always center the musicians, right? So it's sure. really, it was really great to get- They got to go through basic too. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, and, and they're just as much you know, right. members of the military. So it's it's really cool for me to uh, get a bit of that perspective on Triloquy. Once again, I will say the views expressed in this interview are those of the speaker and do not reflect the views, opinions, or official policies of the United States Army, the Department of Defense, or the United States government. We are here to say a little bit about the history of Drum and Fife. So to get us into the interview, I wanted to uh, highlight a group that has maintained the black tradition of it over the years that Shana put me on to. They're called the Rising Star Fife and Drum Band. And this performance uh, comes from the Smithsonian Folklife Channel. I wanna share a bit of this to get into my conversation with Shana Rush from the Old Guard Drum and Fife Corps.
actually my first year in the Corps. I joined in February of 2020. So um, there was an official statement put out on behalf of the military that they're in support of Black Lives Matter. And that was during the time that I was getting um, certified as one of the diversity, equity, and inclusion like specialists. I'm the equal opportunity leader. Mm -hmm. And so I was going through training and people were asking questions like, well, do we have to support BLM? Is that a political movement? And there are a lot of people who thought that that was a movement that shouldn't be supported because it's political. Um, but the military recognized it as a civil rights movement and that it's not, it shouldn't be controversial. So that was a little encouraging, I think. Um, it sparked a lot of conversation within the military. Yeah, I'm sure military support of Black Lives Matter upset a few people, but you know, mm -hmm. it is it is what it is. We officially have the military support. <laughs> you know, you you yep. mentioned you mentioned you're coming in um in February of twenty twenty, you know, just looking around, um, especially when it comes to content put out by the old guard, which we'll talk about. It's hard to mm -hmm. find a video that doesn't feature you at least it's been hard for me to find a video that doesn't feature you i, I, I wonder yes. if you, i wonder if you feel a sense of pressure or maybe even responsibility uh in in your position as a black woman coming in at the heel or at the very beginning of you know this whole renewed black lives matter movement mm-hmm yeah, there was a lot of pressure. And I don't think that's something that organizations ever recognize is that when there's one black person or one person of color, there's so much put on us um, to represent everybody and to be the face because there's only one face. Yep. So I was doing <laughs> interviews, I was asked to be uh, like be interviewed for um, Black History Month. And that was a little controversial because um, <laughs> Because, well, I, I told them I didn't want to do it because I was I was tired of being the face of everything. I've always been, you know, as a classical musician, always been in a predominantly white environment. Mm -hmm. So that's not anything new. But as a professional, I just don't want to have to put up with it. So I told them, um, you know, they should do some research and try and find something to feature about Black history instead of putting that on the Black person in the group and making that another thing for me to do during our month. Um I didn't get to say no to that, but we did <laughs> switch it. <laughs> we switched it to, that's what sparked my research in um, Black Life and Drum Corps because I had just finished my article with the Foodist Quarterly. And so I was able to talk about that. And, um, but besides that, I really did feel like I was the face until I became, I'm in charge of our social media now for okay. the old guard. So I'm, in, I'm behind the camera. <laughs> so you see a lot less of me. <laughs> But yeah, uh, at the beginning, I definitely felt like I was carrying all of the DEI initiative um, and just helping them check off a box for a while. Well, if the uh, old guard Twitter account or something starts to get a little petty, we'll know who's behind it then. For folks who don't know, what is the old guard? Okay, so the old guard is a historical unit. It's it's the only one of its kind in the United States, and they're the official escort to the president. And a lot of people don't know that. A lot of people have never even heard of it. But if you pay attention, you'll notice that there's a group who's wearing red coats and a white powdered wig, mm -hmm. and we only have three instruments. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll get into that part, but go on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So they're colonial uniforms. We do, um, we, we pretty much service all of the military district of Washington. We do state funerals. We do... Um, the inauguration is a, a change of command essentially so we do that other change of commands retirements 
uh, and things around Arlington Cemetery. Um, the point of the Old Guard is to preserve the tradition of George Washington's army during the Revolutionary War. So Revolutionary War is kind of our specialty. We've dabbled in Civil War stuff, but essentially we just tell the story of America. Um, and this story has been told, of course, through a white lens until about 2020. And they're trying to change the script and, and well, talking about changing the script sure. and include a more accurate depiction of American history because telling it from George Washington's side, it sounds, you know, fine, but it was not the same experience for everybody in America. So. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if you can speak to the differences between your initial audition for the military and your audition for the old guard. I'm sure there have, had to have been very big differences. <laughs> yeah, they were very big differences. I, I didn't have a traditional audition for the military. Um, so there are two different types of bands or musical organizations in the army. There's 42 Sierras, which are special bands and 42 Romeos, which are the regional bands. Mm -hmm. um, regional, we just travel every four years, we get restationed, we reach out to local communities. We also have secondary duties like sometimes we'll have to help with medical or uh, police security, things like that. And we can deploy. Um, now the special bands are the Old Guard Fife and Drum Corps, the United States Army Band, the Field Band, and then West Point has a band um, that services mm -hmm. them. So these four bands have their own auditions. And I auditioned for the Field Band actually, right before I joined the military. And I was one of the runners up for that audition. So instead of, you know, they were like, we can't offer you this job, but we will give you a uh, loan repayment and, you know, all these other, you know, nice fluffy things. Mm -hmm. um, and I was able to join that way. So I just did the field band audition and it was on fight or not on fight. It was on flute and piccolo. Um, they're more musically based. They just want to know that you have musical ability. Um, regional bands also have something called the AMPA that they get scored. And it's a very rigid scoring system to decide whether you're qualified for the job or not. And then once you get your score um, submitted, they just choose you on a panel. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, so it could, there are a lot of ways to get into the military. The old guard though. <laughs> and maybe not that many ways to get out. But... <laughs> yeah, yeah, right? <laughs> we'll talk about that another time. Right, but, right. <laughs> but yeah, so to, to join the old guard Fife and Drum Corps, we're the only one who has an audition like this because we are based on marching abilities in playing uh, it mostly teachability because uh, not a lot of people who play the fife now played the fife before they came into the core. So um, my audition was, I submitted a packet, I had to do a full body photo. They had to make sure I was in, within regulation for the you know military height and weight standards. Mm -hmm. um, and then I sent in some recordings of me playing piccolo. So that was the first round and audition or the resume and everything. And then once I got there, it was a two day audition. So the first day I played a few tunes from memory on piccolo. I had to march, I had to get some instruction from a drum major and they saw how well I was able to adapt. And then I did a standing test, which was 20 minutes just standing in place because we have to stand up to 90 minutes sometimes during these ceremonies. Um, and someone actually passed out during my audition. Oh, so wow. it's, <laughs> it's surprisingly <laughs> difficult at the beginning. Um, but after the first day, then they, uh, they will or will not eliminate somebody. It's just depending on what they like. And then um, there's more playing. You play the Fife in March, and then you have an interview at the end. 
Oh, wow. So, and and yeah. I suppose that was successful for you. You're, it, you're there now. <laughs> <laughs> it was successful, yes. <laughs> Were there big um, social or maybe even musical onboarding challenges? What, what did those first few weeks as an official member of the old guard feel like? What do you remember from those early days? I didn't know if I could do it. <laughs> I really was like, why did I sign up for this? Um, but it was exciting at the same time. So like I said earlier, I, I got here at the beginning of the pandemic, also February of 2020. Mm -hmm. So essentially, we have six months of training, usually. Um, and usually there's more than one person who's hired at, at one time. I got hired by myself. And I was doing training during the pandemic when everybody was sent home to telework. So the way that I went through the training was kind of isolated. So it was a little more difficult because I didn't have anyone to show me hands on. This is how you hold the fife. This is, mm. um, you know, just the simple things that are different going to fife from the flute. So it took me probably about six weeks to really feel comfortable on the fife, um, learning these new fingerings, not being afraid to play. It's a, it's very it's not that pretty in a small room. <laughs> sure. <laughs> so yeah, I had to get used to that. Um, and then there's a lot of marching and everybody in the core has their eye on you because the standard is really high. So uh, it's never going to go away. I always will have something to work on. Everyone will always have something to work on to make us look a little more clean and sound a little more clean. Um, and not to mention there's a lot of memorizing. Right. So between memorizing, learning a new marching style, and then just being in the middle of the pandemic, it was a little rough at the beginning. Sure, um, sure. Yeah. And remind but, me, are, are you the first black woman or black person to be a member of the old guard? <laughs> Surprisingly, no. There have been quite a few black people in the old guard. Um, I don't know how many black women there were. I know there were at least two before me. Okay. So um and i know the climate has not been the same and i was wondering as i was looking into some of these initiatives now why hasn't this happened before since there were other black people before me but um i imagine that it wasn't encouraged to say anything about being the only black person they're calling out racism in the workplace because it wasn't a thing you know people didn't want to acknowledge it so um, 2020 was a really big year for the core in particular because they had to talk about it when they were able to, you know, just kind of get on and the black people could just get on without saying anything and keep their head, heads down. So, yeah. And I was really, you know, shocked to learn that not only is there a contemporary history when it comes to the old guard, as far as how we know it and see it when it comes to black folks participating, but a historical uh, aspect of black folks and drum and fife cores that I had no idea about. But before we talk a little bit about that history, I wonder how aware of that history are your colleagues and, and the rest of the folks in the military? Is this common knowledge or is this something that they have recently learned as well? Definitely. It's a recent thing for most people especially in the military, um, but in, in the military in general, or I guess in the army in general, a lot of people don't even know that this unit exists, um, let alone that we had any kind of like music in the army doesn't seem like a thing until they go to a ceremony and realize it's awkward if there's no one playing music. Otherwise, you know, no <laughs> one's really, like, they don't notice that we're there. So 
they're not asking those questions. Um, but when I brought that to the attention of the people who were in charge of the regiment that I'm under, mm-hmm. um, they were really shocked to learn this. They didn't know that Black people had a history like this. They didn't know that we weren't allowed to bear arms when we first started. And, and so we were still serving. And how did they make that, that work? So the pieces started coming together for them. And then um, within the Fife and Drum Corps, I was I was surprised at the amount of people who did know a little bit of history about uh, individual musicians in the Fife and Drum world. Mm. So not necessarily um, our role during the Revolutionary War when Fife and Drum was brought to America, but um, <clears throat> as it's evolved over time, some key people who were black who just happened to be black is how they put it. Sure. Um, and <laughs> we're in the world, you know. Yeah. So they're still playing the music that they play in New England and the Eurocentric kind of stuff, but they were integrated um, into the traditions. So. I mean, being black in the 1770s was more than just happening to be black. I mean, a lot yeah. came with that. But <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so, so let's rewind back uh, to that part of history, the 1770s, Revolutionary War. What do black people or what did black people have to do with drum and fife back in those days? So during the Revolutionary War was a really complicated time for African-Americans, for um, slaves, because Um, people who were enslaved were rioting a lot during that time leading up into the Revolutionary War. So we were banned from being in the military because if they give us a weapon, we could turn around and give it right back. And probably would. Yeah, (laughs) if it was me, I would. So So it's understandable. Um, But then the British started offering freedom to a lot of a lot of enslaved people. And so they were running away to fight for the British side. And at this time, it wasn't really a political. I mean, we view uh, Revolutionary War, the colonial side, the Confederate side, the British, all of that is viewed politically now. Mm -hmm. But at the time, we were just trying to find somebody who would give us our freedom and who would let us live. So there were people who fought um during the you know during the revolutionary war they were on the british side they were fighting on american side they were doing whoever was gonna give them freedom and then during the civil war that was another thing people fought on the confederate side and the union side because it was whoever was going to get the best deal yeah um so in order to allow black people to serve we uh were on the field as drummers and fifers at first so it would usually be a fifer and a drummer and a commander. And the commander was always white. So they would be under this command and he would say, sound attention. And then, you know, whatever the fife attention call would be, they would mm-hmm. put that out and everyone would know what the command was. So we were just communicating on the field and that's what fife and drum was anyway. But we were the first ones to really be utilized specifically for that. Um, during my research, it was really difficult to find this information. I think there there are only maybe two or three accounts that I could go back and see this written in um, in memos during that time that Black people were only allowed to serve as medics, as musicians, as um, laymen, like people who just did um, non non battlefield jobs or non sure. you know, the artillery. Yeah. So. Yeah. Wow. Wow. So with with that being the case, you know, this being the start of uh, fife and drum in the United States, I'm sure that it didn't stick 
with military adjacent things alone, especially, you know, you have all these black folks that have learned to play these instruments. How did the tradition mm -hmm. evolve away from the military or, or did it evolve separate from the military? Yeah, it has evolved in a few different ways, especially, you know, as far as for, for the black community, mm -hmm. um, there were people who wanted to maintain that tradition, the Eurocentric tradition and, um, play the battlefield tunes because that's just what they knew. And even during the time, you know, when black people were serving as a little less than uh, their counterparts, they were still included on the battlefield. They would, we'd all st still sing the same songs and we still have that camarader camaraderie because of the circumstances. Mm -hmm. So that's a really unique part of um, our history is that that's one thing that brought us together during a time that it usually that would never happen yeah. so those people who appreciated that just kept doing that um we still see that in new york there's the new rochelle fife and drum court they're called charles dickerson fife and drum Corps now and they were started because they wanted to be in a boy scout troop and play in a parade in new rochelle but there weren't any black boy scout group troops so they started their own they got their instruments and they were trained by uh, Gus Muller, if any drummers out there know who he is, sure. legendary. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's one direction that it went was just keeping it New England um, and keeping it black. The other way was that it went south to Mississippi, uh, Tennessee. Um, I guess, yeah, around the south, the southern area, um, there was now the rising star fife and drum corps with Sade Thomas. She's a five player and her, her grandfather actually kept up that tradition. And that is more of a blues style. So people oh. who went back home to the South would kind of fuse those together. You know, they would have their, um, their battle tunes and then they would put a little blues into their little spin on it. Yeah. And a lot of them included some spirituals too. So when you hear recordings of them, you'll hear oftentimes, uh, be, you know, the intro will be, the fife and then it'll go into a song and him and then pick up on fife and drum again wow 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 yeah we, we, we always add a little seasoning to to things we do even when it comes to <laughs> when it comes to yep. that is, yep. is, is there any proximity or a relationship between um drum and fife as it exists among black folks today as you're describing in new york and mississippi and drum and fife as it exists in the military are those two iterations of the tradition joined in any way from my experience so far which i am still very new to this uh environment so sure. i can't really yeah. speak on it you know but from what i what i've experienced there hasn't been a lot of collaboration between the military fife and drum and um the southern tradition but we do we do keep in touch and collaborate with the uh, Charles Dickerson Fife and Drum Corps quite a bit. We're very close to them. Um, and then the Southern tradition is just so, they really consider themselves to be more of like blues and folk um, mm -hmm. influence. So they're more involved in that world. Uh, that being said, though, we are trying to get them to, to come and at least, you know, teach us something about it and talk about it because it does need to be included. If we're practicing fife and drum as a tradition in America, that takes a lot of different forms. And 
I can speak on black people because I'm black, but yeah. it could even evolve into, you know, there's Native American fives. There's people who are of Asian descent who have, you know, their own versions of fives. Mm-hmm. So this could really be a little more inclusive and represent America better. Um, if we just, you know, take from our resources and learn how we see it in, yeah. in different cultures. Yeah. Why is it important in your opinion to learn about this bit of history it seems pretty fringe you know even for Mm -hmm. for music but i don't know pretty significant at the same time why 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 is this a significant thing for us to understand and learn about when it comes to american history not just black history you know but american Mm -hmm. history Mm -hmm. well america is just uh i mean you've been here you know we have our our problems (laughs) we're struggling and there i think it's a lot of lack of understanding Uh, no willingness to understand where we come from and our history i mean history is not something that you can ignore because it's it's shaped everything that we see today it's not like it happened way back then and then that's gone that's you know faded away um i see i live in baltimore Mm -hmm. and if that is not the biggest example of how history just repeated itself and how we're still paying the consequences of what happened um earlier in time like, I don't know what else is. So I think it's important for us to progress, to know the history of the people around us and the people who are contributing to America, to this yeah. country. Yeah. Um, and uh, in the military in particular, the, the musicians are known to be ambassadors for the military. We're the face of the military. We try to, you know, um, make it a little, a little lighter, a little more pro- approachable because people should have a little more trust in us um, yeah. than seeing us with weapons. You know? <laughs> right. So a fife is less intimidating. <laughs> I don't know. A, a fife could be an aural weapon if you, uh, if you play it yeah, loud enough. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it, could be, it could be a torture. <laughs> but yeah, it looks a little more friendly. We can talk to the public and that's a big part of our mission in the old guard is we want to do outreach and talk to people and use our resources to teach in the community and um, just be involved in the people around us. And being in DC, if we don't know the history of more than just white history, we're not reaching the majority of the schools in Mm -hmm. this area, especially in the inner city. There are so many, I mean, you can't go anywhere in DC without running into one of every 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 kind of person. Sure. Um, so I think it will enhance the outreach we're able to do too, because then we're we're making it relevant to more people. Um, as the social media manager or one of them in the old guard, I see the kind of audience that is attracted to what we do. Mm-hmm. And that's not what we're going for. So in order to get out of that, we have to learn about other invi- other audiences and reach out to them so that we're not just getting the same type of people. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. I, I wonder what that has looked like for you, getting in the regalia and, and going to some of these uh, inner city schools, these schools with, um, you know, really high populations of people of color. What has presenting in front of those groups looked like for you so far? Well, I have not done any outreach um, oh, since wow, I've okay. been in DC, actually. But I was stationed in El Paso, Texas, before this, which I absolutely loved. <laughs> but El Paso is a border town, and so there are a lot of people of color, mostly people who are Mexican, or a lot of Black people who are uh, militaries, military families. Mm-hmm. So I was able to go into those environments and. 
it really helped. Of course, in El Paso, um, it's easy to get involved in the culture there. So we were always doing things that were relevant. We celebrated the Day of the Dead. We celebrated mm -hmm. everything that they did. We just adopted it. And it was so cool to be able to be integrated. And we played at um, an immigration ceremony and chose tunes for people who were, you know, we knew where everybody was, was getting their citizenship. And um, we played there and were able to, you know, I guess, recognize people from, from different areas. So before I came to the Old Guard, I was able to see how that was successful. Um, and in, in DC, I, I heard that we've tried to go to more uh, diverse places like, uh, I, don't, I, I don't know which HBC, <laughs> <laughs> we tried it. <laughs> I wasn't there. Because if I was, I would have recommended something different. But um, the story goes that they went to an HBCU and they were booed off of the stage because <laughs> they're wearing, I mean, look what they were wearing. Yeah. So uh, if people don't understand what we're doing, if they see just this red coat and a powdered wig, I know I would be like, <laughs> it's a little sus. So having someone like me, at least, I mean, I don't like being a token, but right. I do like being able to tell them if you want to do outreach and you want to make a difference in other other communities, you have to read the room. Yeah. So we're learning to read the room and figure out what's going to make people trust us. And by rem reminding them of colonialism, which is not a it's not pretty. Yeah, we just we have to face it. It is not pretty. We have to ask ourselves why we're trying to preserve it how we can justify it with the public. If they're seeing this, why are we here? Yeah. So, um, you know, just thinking about those things and recognizing maybe it's not, maybe it's not relevant anymore. I don't know, but yeah, we have to kind of ask ourselves those questions before we go into environments like that. Yeah. It, it's the aesthetic for me. Like you, you mentioned yeah. the, the wig and, and the uniform. I mean, do you, do you ever feel a way? Um, and I, I, I almost hesitate to ask this question because I don't want somebody in the military to have some smoke with me, but, do you, <laughs> but, but do you ever feel a way just putting on this white costume? If I, if I may use that language, is that mm -hmm. a challenge for you or has that been a challenge for you? In, in this type of work, you know, taking your blackness and muting it, not only, uh, you know, in a musical way, maybe, but all the way to putting on that white man's wig. Mm hmm. Yeah, it has been it has been a journey for me um, trying to figure out how I feel about wearing the uniform um, right now. I, I mentioned to you when we talked before the show um, that I I. At first, I thought it was a little bit out of spite. You know, I'm here in spite of people thinking that I don't belong here. And yeah. I've been to places where someone, one of the audience members came to me and said, we didn't used to let Black people like you into the old guard. I was mm. in the old guard in 76 and I just never saw anyone like you. And I mean, he didn't say it. It wasn't positive or negative. He just came up and let me know I wasn't mm -hmm. supposed to be here. What he said was false, obviously. Um, but it those things remind me that people don't want to see me here and so if i want if i can take up space where people don't think that i belong and i'm i'm doing a really good job at this job i feel like um i've taken to it really really easily with the fife at least i always like to be at the top of my game yeah <laughs> and so we have um to be. yeah you have to be you know just like all of the black people's experiences all of us have to be the best and so 
being able to do that in this environment has really been empowering. Um, but I do, that's, that's the reason why I've been so invested in this research, because I know that we were wearing the powder wigs when we were, you know, during the Revolutionary War, but it mm -hmm. still was the same symbol and it was the same thing. So, um, you know, I've, ha I've been a part of a lot of conversations about this and um, there's, pos there's possibility things could change. They could look different or they couldn't. And I am just taking it kind of day by day um, and seeing how much I can take because I've been, I've been putting on the white man's costume uh, metaphorically <laughs> for yeah, so right. many years. Right. Yeah. So now I'm physically putting it on and it's, yeah, it's like, it's, I have to ask myself every day if yeah. it's worth it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and I, I kind of just want to ask directly, do you think there is a chance for that part of it, just the costume part of it to evolve in a hundred years, 200 years, do you think the old guard is still going to look like the, you know, how it looks today and how it looked a hundred years ago? <laughs> right. Yeah. I really hope not. Um, I, I can only speculate because I haven't been in the unit very long, but I do know that the progress I've seen from the leadership in, um, my regiment and the regiment is kind of the overarching real big army people mm -hmm. um the leadership i've seen and how it's evolved since i've been there has given me a little more hope because there are people who are now at the top who are saying something and asking about why we do things because um i've noticed that when people are invested in a tradition they would rather not ask questions like that because sure. then it means that they have to reconsider what they've been doing forever and that's uncomfortable for anybody so um, as long as we continue to have people in leadership who are bold enough to ask about this and make some changes and make us relevant, there is hope <laughs> that we could look different. Is, and if anything... It, I was just going to ask, is it risky? You, you say that have, are bold enough to ask these questions. Is, is it risky to ask these questions? Depending on your rank, it can be. <laughs> <laughs> Depending okay. on who's on your team, yeah. So it's very political, just like just like any other um, orchestras, anything. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, everything's political. So yeah. it depends on who's on your side, what influence you have, and the justification. So if you can justify it, um, it really <laughs> it helps. Right now, also a nice justification was Biden did. Um, he kind of cracked down on seeing more diversity in the military bands because he noticed that. Oh, that really? was lacking so mm -hmm. so that started some conversations as well oh that's really cool well where is your research taking you do you have lectures coming up or or, or what is what does that look like for you i have i have lectures coming up in the military i guess we have oh, sure. um these we have little classes for leadership development so um, but I am trying to go into part two of my research because I just skimmed the surface. So I'm on the research committee for the National Food Association, and I will likely be publishing again sometime within the next three years. So yeah. uh, just keep an eye out for that. And um, I'm not really that good at social media, but <laughs> I think that's the best place for me to share what I'm learning. 
Um, I'm also in the library. We, we run the Center for Military Music and I'm responsible for adding this part of history to our library. So that will also be available for the public once we're done with that project. Um, so you can keep an eye on just the, the old guard fife and drum corps and you'll see, you'll see me pop up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll put it out there. Yeah. yeah that, that's awesome. Yeah. I could definitely picture you in front of a group of elementary school kids, maybe even in costume, you know, for the week they're talking about the Revolutionary War, that connection yeah. for a little black girl or a little black boy to not only see you in your skin, but to see you telling our story, you know, actually mm -hmm. making it relevant. That That's really exciting for me to think about. Is there a, um, a one-stop shop, a website or anything that folks can visit to learn more about you and, and your work and, and everything that you're doing with the military and outside of the military? Yeah. <laughs> well, right now, Instagram is the best way because my, my website is currently being worked on. Sure. Um, so I have a Instagram and I'll link the website. It's powdered cocoa. Um, <laughs> that's my Instagram and my, um, my website, even though it's under construction, I can give you the name of it. So if you want to check back, um, it is shameless. So S-H-A-I-M-L-E-S-S flutes.com. That sounds great. Wow. Well, I have one more question to sort of uh, lead us out. Uh, speaking generally in the military, not just with the old guard or drumming uh, fife corps, being a musician is a thing that a lot of musicians consider. You know, we get out of music school. I wasn't willing to cut my hair, so it wasn't a, a, a consideration <laughs> for me, but I know a mm -hmm. lot of people who, you know, get done with conservatory and their training and uh, look for jobs within the military as musicians. Do you have any words of advice or, or encouragement to musicians who are just on the precipice of that de decision folks who are considering it but maybe don't know what they have to expect with with that sort of career in music mm -hmm. yes I have so many words <laughs> it's been <laughs> quite the journey but if anything uh, as much as much as I struggle you know with certain things within the military I think I would be struggling with it anywhere um, right now so I don't want that to be discouraging for anybody listening to this. Um, there's still progress happening. So I encourage people to, if you want to join the military, go in with the mindset that first they're going to be providing for you. That's the biggest benefit that I've had is that I don't have to worry about anything. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's the best paying job as a musician. So um, if you're joining like a regimental or a regional unit, you go to basic training and all of that. And so getting in shape is important. Um, being well-rounded as a musician. So being able to play in different styles or um, being innovative, maybe you arrange, maybe you write, all of those things are welcome. And they also have a lot of support if you want to dive into something you've never done and you want to take a class or anything like that. So if you're looking to join the military, um, that's the biggest thing is know that it is still the military. It's a great, it's a great job if you have the discipline and um, if you're willing to be a little flexible for anything that could happen in life um, and reach out to whoever you can. A lot of military people love um, helping if you have questions or if you want to take lessons or anything like that. And everything is always free <laughs> when it's through us. So, yep.
That's a little bit of the first movement of the flute concertino by composer Keith Gates. That performance featured the Air Force Heritage Band featuring flautist Master Sergeant Wayne Hendrick. I, I, I picked that to transition us out, Scott, because I went back into some of my programming lists to see what I was putting together for Veterans Day and 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 those sorts of things on the mm. radio. Mm. And um and that and that piece was there, so I thought it was appropriate to share a flute piece. We have to never forget the significance that, and we've talked about this before, but I'll say it again, we can never forget the significance of military musicians to music education, especially when it comes to band. The the so-called professional recordings, with the exception of, of the Dallas Wind Symphony and what they're doing at the University of, of North Texas, it's the military band recordings that mm. we use as mm. the standard. And um, it, it's just so important and incredible that music and conversations about equity within music exist within the military. It definitely couldn't be me. But shout out to all of the service people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you come from a, a a military community. Did you ever consider a career in the military? Until six months before my freshman, my first semester of freshman year, I was going to go in the Air Force. And what happened? <laughs> you you realized that you had to do push-ups or what? <laughs> no, no, no. A guy that a guy that I was working with in a department store said, Why would you want to do that? Again, getting back to the question that we were uh, when we were we were talking about Chelsea in the beginning of this, that question why mm-hmm. it, it sounds like that the answer to that question led you down a completely it would have different been a, path. It would have been a different life for sure. Yeah, uh, we're we're gonna trill our way into the triloquy movement this week since we're you know thinking about the flute uh, with a piece of music by another member of the triloquy family, Doctor carlos simon he has a piece of music for solo flute called move it and we're going to hear this performed by bryce smith the performance of move it by carlos simon to get us into the fourth movement hate to cut these recordings off but can you can you he- not hear the seasoning that, that, that piece of music is seasoned i have a question for you you though. can hear the groove you could hear him playing the click mm-hmm. that the keys would make yeah is that considered a desirable or an undesirable sound while playing the flute i don't know it sounded pretty cool to me well how do you think it sounded no because the the reason why i was going to ask is because a lot of people like when you lift your fingers up off the fretboard to get to another chord sometimes you hear your hands run up and down the strings oh sure some people do like that and they play that i think and some don't and I, I was just I think, curious well i think what you're hearing is written you know that that's for that, the, that's, that's my for question. The, that's and, my question. And, if, and and yeah. and even if it's not written, it's for the effect of that groove that we can hear right. with him playing the flute. Shout out to uh, Dr. Bryce Smith there for that incredible performance. Y'all be sure to go uh, check that out. All right, we're here in the fourth movement where I just get to uh, say what I feel like I need to say on certain things. I'm gonna uh, keep it quick. First and foremost, I put this on social media, and Scott, I want your opinion. So there, and I won't name the orchestra now. But we'll we'll see how things uh, turn out. But um, I was offered, you know, the great honor of, of being offered a number of concerts with an orchestra 
Um, I haven't, you know, subbed in an orchestra in a little while. I've done some performances, but that sort of thing. I was like, oh, well, I'm on somebody's radar. They want me to join them for a little while. That's great. I don't wear tuxedos that are, we are, we've talked about church socks, right? Right. Right. <laughs> I'm definitely, definitely not going to be around here on stage in a white shirt and a black bow tie looking like a dreadlock Uncle Ben. Okay. Oh. So, <laughs> oh. so, so my request. Is that problematic? Do I need to? <laughs> anyway, so what I said to the personnel manager was, okay, these are the services I can do. Thanks for inviting me for cultural reasons. And I think that's the phrase I used for cultural reasons. I no longer wear a tuxedo, but I'm more than happy to abide by all black if that's okay. Now, that's not me being up there on stage by myself in all black because Traditionally, all women on stage in orchestras were all black anyway. So it's not like I would stick out in that way, but I'm, I'm not putting on the colonized uniform. We mm-hmm. were talking about that with Shana, right? Mm-hmm. You know, so I'm not going to do that in, in the orchestra field. He has yet to get back to me. My question for you, as I acknowledge the privilege of not needing every single thing that passes my desk, I can push the envelope or say no to things. I, I first and foremost acknowledge that as a privilege. Is that something that, from your perspective, I should consider arbitrary? Should I just shut my mouth and put on the bow tie? Garrett, I think that that's important to you. Mm -hmm. So, no, I'm not going to tell you to stop doing that or not stand by that. Stick stick by that gun. My my comment is that whether you accept, whether they accept your terms mm -hmm. and you come in and play or they get somebody else, either way, there's going to be somebody there. Right. And- Either way, it sends a message. And that's why I say, again, I have the privilege of not needing to run over to that gig. And I and I understand that. And I know that no matter what, somebody is going to be sitting there bigger than just affirming mm-hmm. me and my choices. Do you think it's arbitrary to have folks up there on stage looking like they're servants on an episode of Downton Abbey mm-hmm. in the year of 2022 in a uniform that ultimately is not an American one, one that was adopted from overseas and all the colonial things we talk about with orchestral music and classical music. Do you think this is a battle on a broader scale than just me no, that's it's a, worth fighting? It's worth fighting. It's a, it's a big piece of the bigger fight, you know? Do you, yeah, go ahead. No, I was just, I was just going to say that uh, the more come as you are or come as you'd like sort of attitude mm-hmm. is part of breaking down the barriers, some of the barriers that we're talking about, meaning uh, getting a younger audience in, uh, people from diverse uh, economic backgrounds. Not everybody can afford to put on something flash. And of course I'm gonna be fly. Because I'm, I'm going to soup there, up the I, all I black. Think, I think that that's, I think that's the point. There will that be different textures. I think, yeah. we're, uh, <laughs> I think that's what we're getting at is, you know, it, it's not like you're going to show up in, in right. Crocs. Right. Which I should be able to, some black Crocs, I won't. But, you know. You wouldn't. I think. You, you, you just said that you would make it fly. It's a moment. It's a, it's a moment that I'm proud. I take a lot of pride in it, Scott, because. This is one thing. The way that orchestras dress on stage to mimic the European tradition, that's one thing. But 
still one thing. Mm -hmm. So what if we can break that down? I think it's the Philadelphia Orchestra that has officially switched. Everybody over there wears um, all right? black. Cool. And, you know, for, for me, aside from dismantling the colonial look and the classist look of it by getting rid of those tuxedos, I think we also deal with things like gender norms and binary gender expectations. You know, men wear this and women wear this is a very outdated way of thinking about anything, even the orchestral experience. So mm -hmm. for me, I hope that I get to report back to y'all in the affirmative, but I'm telling y'all what happened no matter what. This podcast is called Triloquy, so we're we going to see next week. I'm also not waiting all week because I have to I have to arrange my schedule and I have to be out of town <laughs> right, and, all, right. you know, and bring Dell with me, you know, and all that stuff. So I'll report back, but I just wanted to let y'all know that that's something that we can we can do. That's change that we can impact. It may seem small, but it's actually huge. So if you are uh, if you identify as a man, if you are a man playing in an orchestra, why not suggest to your personnel manager, hey, what if we wear something different? What is the worst that can happen? Half y'all got tenure anyway, so it doesn't matter. Just make the suggestion and let's try to push in that small way, but at the same time, that huge way. All right. And then in closing, I'm I've been good about keeping us under two hours. In closing, Scott, I think we have to address the Spotify thing. Mm. All I have to say is, I'm going to let you close it out. All I have to say is I was never particularly a Spotify user. I got Spotify to listen to the Joe Button podcast when it was exclusively there. And, you know, mm -hmm. I, I say his name a lot. Mm -hmm. His he his product, his approach to podcasting played a vital role in Triloquy, a, a direct inspiration. So, you know, I, I followed that podcast wherever it goes. He's not with them anymore. And it's interesting that we're talking about Joe Rogan these days because he didn't like the terms that Spotify had for him. And then weeks later, we're, we're seeing Spotify give Joe Rogan $100 million. I tried listening to one episode of that podcast, the episode with uh, Mike Tyson. I, it, it's not really my jam. I'm not saying it's a bad show. It's just not my show. Right Now, with COVID, uh false information and all of those things traveling around for me, that was just the nail in the the final nail in the coffin. So, you know, Spotify, if, if, if they're going to stick by putting money and energy behind that sort of content, that's their prerogative. And it's also my prerogative to move the show. So if you're list, if you are used to listening to this on Spotify, I guess you're not listening to this right now, or you found it somewhere else. I've pulled Triloquy from Spotify. I don't plan on going back. And then Triloquy tracks, if you just go to the website, you can see all the list of the music we talk about from episode to episode. And then uh, there's a sub page on the website where you can uh, access the playlists on title. I'll, I'll work on um, getting it on Apple Music as well for the case of accessibility. How about you uh, take us to the end? Why, 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 do, why do you agree with this decision? I quit, I quit Spotify back when I found out what they were paying per spin. You know, that they weren't. So it's kind of like when you look at bananas or 69 cents a pound and you think that they got to put them on boats and all these people to pick, you know, somebody's getting screwed. Mm -hmm. So that I had that re realization with the music there. And so when this happened, it was no skin. Off. It, it didn't hurt me at all because I had already deleted it. <laughs> but I think yeah. it's I, I do think that it says something about a company who bills itself as a music streaming platform getting behind a podcaster. Say say a little bit more. We're we're running late, but say a little bit more. What do you mean? Getting behind a podcaster instead of a musician. Instead of, instead of the musician. 
Yeah, mm. I, I think that's telling. Yeah, that is a very interesting point. The the things that, in many ways, we allege to support, we're actually doing something very different. We call out that sort of thing a lot here on this podcast. You can't have <laughs> access to everything recorded for $10 a month without somebody getting screwed. Mm-hmm. The oppression of capitalism. All right, y'all. See y'all on Tidal or Apple Music or wherever, <laughs> and we'll see you next week.